0: Welcome back, everyone, to Inflammatory Content, the podcast all about immunology. I'm your host, Kellen Cavanero. Today is a big day. We are going to do something different, something I've been wanting to do since I started this podcast, and that is to record a conversation with a top researcher about their science and journey. Our guest today is Dr. Alan O'Neill. Alan is a microbiologist, immunologist, and also a friend and colleague. He is currently a project scientist in the same lab as me, and that is Dr. Richard Gallo's lab at the University of California, San Diego. In this episode, we talk about how Alan became the successful scientist he is today, his work on microbiome therapeutics with a focus on his recent publication in eLife. You can find the link in the show notes. We also talk about imposter syndrome and much more. A word of warning. This was my first time ever recording a conversation for the podcast. I started out a bit nervous and realized after we started rolling that I should have prepared my questions in advance. That said, Alan's great speaking ability and scientific knowledge made up for my shortcomings and then some. So without further ado, please enjoy this conversation with Dr. Alan O'Neill. Alan, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. It's uh, good to have you here. I've been wanting to do this conversation for a bit, so I'm excited to get to know uh, a little bit more about your background and hear about the paper you recently published. So I think kind of the first question and logical place to start is, what got you into science?
1: I think what got me into science probably was an image of a bacteriophage in my first year high school biology class. I wasn't really all that interested so much in school or even biology but i remember going through the textbook and i remember seeing this really striking very cool image of a bacteriophage sitting on the surface of a microbe and i remember thinking that this is just like the coolest looking thing like the capsule the capsid of the bacteriophage looked like something kind of out of the matrix you know very kind of sci-fi and I always remember that captured my attention. I was fascinated by that.
0: Where did you end up going to college, doing your undergrad?
1: I went to UCD, which is University College Dublin. It's, uh, it's, a, huge, it's a huge college. Um, I think it's the biggest college in, in Ireland. It's on the south of Dublin, so I'm from the north of Dublin. So it was kind of a big trek to get there. It was a big decision to make to go there. I had to get basically two buses to get to the campus. Uh, two buses there, two buses back. So, you know, every day I was traveling for maybe an hour and a half. But I really wanted to go to that campus. I really wanted to go to that that university.
0: Did you end up doing some undergraduate research there too? Or did that not come until later?
1: That didn't come until later. Yeah, I... I guess maybe there wasn't so many opportunities to do undergraduate research or again I never really considered it so much. The only time I really got into a lab and got my hands dirty was in my final year and the first semester was just a dedicated research project and that was around three months. That was the first time apart from the Uh, the practical classes and stuff like that this was the first first time I was in a lab properly full-time for several months doing a project I did a project on HTLV one and I had a supervisor Dr. Norian Sheehy she was a great mentor she inspired me a lot and I think doing that project really stimulated my interest in research I think that's that's what really made me want to go on actually and, and pursue research as a career
0: was was that project that I did did you uh, have an opportunity to work with a postdoc or were you kind of doing your own thing? Surprisingly, I was directly
1: mentored by uh, Dr. Sheehy. in the lab, in the lab. Yeah. That's nice. And it was really So she's the principal investigator there mm-hmm. and she has a she has a small group. But she was really really involved in the research. She she loved it. She was passionate about teaching students. And I learned directly from her. She was, she's was very good. And she was very, very tough with me. <laughs> she didn't, she didn't let me away with much. And I learned a lot from her. She was a great mentor and inspired me a lot.
0: So that's, that's what definitely made me want to choose this career. Were there any particular practices or habits that you learned from her that you've kind of carried with today? Like,
1: yeah, I think detailed notes in the lab. This is what she hammered home to me. Anytime she was showing me a technique, Western blotting, anything like that, always had to have a notebook, always had to be writing down very fast, all the instructions. I essentially had one chance to learn the techniques and get them right. And the way I did that was by taking extremely detailed notes. And then of course, following up with other postgrads and
0: postdocs in the lab to make sure that my protocol was correct. And then I would do it. So you finished your undergrad, Did some research? Did you need to get some more experience after that to kind of prove to yourself that you could handle this life that (laughs) we have uh, for the long term?
1: I still wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do. So the microbiology degree that I chose actually had quite a lot of industrial elements to it as well. So we had a lot of courses on how bioreactors work. So there was definitely a connection to the industrial microbiology side. I was just more interested in the the medical microbiology courses and so i guess i i've never really got very high grades in the first three years of my of my degree but in the final year i got an a plus on that uh, research project and i guess i was surprised i don't know i don't didn't usually get a lot of a's so i think that really that convinced me maybe oh this is i'm actually good at this maybe i could do this so then i i did very well i got a very high gpa in my final year which was my final score and i think with that i just thought this is a great platform now that i can go and actually look to do a phd i came i don't know i was in the top three of my class really liked the research project that i did so i thought
0: sure why not i'm going to see if i can do a phd so straight after straight after did you get in where you wanted to go or was it a a struggle
1: It wasn't a struggle I was surprised everybody seemed pretty keen actually mm-hmm. on on accepting me I guess maybe it's a little bit different in Ireland versus the US it's quite common for grad students to come straight out of university into into the grad program The place that I chose was in UCD it was the school of veterinary medicine i started my phd there but i actually didn't finish it as a phd i completed that as a masters i wasn't very happy in that program i didn't really like the lab that i was in so this was a very big decision that i had to make actually before i transitioned from well transitioned to official phd status i decided not to do that and finished early wrote a thesis and I left with a masters. I did that maybe because I was very ambitious. I thought I could do really really good science. I wanted to go to a top top lab, really do elite science. I decided in the end to go to London and
0: I pursued a PhD in London actually. So was the the lab you were in just kind of not the right fit? Yeah, it, I just don't think it was the right
1: fit maybe the the atmosphere was a bit laid back. I wanted somebody to push me. I wanted somebody to really kind of make me the best scientist and researcher I could be. And it was a good department. I really liked the people there. My supervisor was good, he's smart, Uh, but it's just the department was maybe a little bit too relaxed for me. Uh, Mm -hmm. And I knew I could get a PhD there. I mean, people were very supportive of me and the work was good. But I just thought this was a good opportunity for me to try and go as high as possible. And that was that was my decision really. I wanted to be in a very tough lab. Mm-hmm. Um kind of something that's dynamic, high pressure, a group that's really publishing top level science. So I thought I could maybe go for that. I tried and very fortunate I I did land in a in a very good lab.
0: And that was in London? That was in London, yeah, in Imperial College, London. And that was what you perceived as like the pinnacle. Yeah, <laughs> to me, yeah. To to be in Imperial College, it's an it's, uh, incredible place.
1: It's one of the top universities in the world. And the microbiology there is one of the best in, in Europe. I applied for a Marie Curie PhD scholarship, and, and I was very lucky to get that. So that's a pretty prestigious scholarship to get and I interviewed in in Imperial College with several labs and the one that basically offered me the position was uh, Professor David Holden. His lab works on salmonella pathogenesis but my project was a little bit different, it was working on group A streptococcus which is a very different pathogen. So that has its advantages and disadvantages to go into a lab where no one else studies this particular organism. It was a great decision. I I loved the lab and um,
0: I learned a lot, but it it was what I wanted. I wanted a tough lab and <laughs> I got it. <laughs> mm-hmm. We had a conversation before about like the process in I believe it was that lab about how grad students develop their thesis project, and it was, if I recall, you said it was much more of a independent thing you're not given a project you're you're expected to create the project am i remembering correctly
1: yeah it, it's it's correct in a way i had a specific topic that i had to work on which was working on the intracellular biology of group a streptococcus this is what my boss really really wanted to do david had spent you know 20 plus years working on the intracellular biology of salmonella typhi and learned a lot and published incredible work but he wanted to take all of that work all of that insight that he had learned in 20 plus years and essentially apply it to another pathogen an understudied pathogen such as streptococcus and so this is what he had planned for my PhD I had to focus on group A strep but because no work had been done i arrived in a lab that didn't even have streptococcus i had Mm -hmm. to get the strains it essentially meant that i had a free role. i could take the project really in kind of anywhere i wanted to go i would essentially just do very preliminary experiments doing a lot of optimization steps doing just infecting primary cells and then just following whatever interesting phenotype i found so i had a lot of freedom
0: that way but it was it was a specific topic, I would say, and if you could kind of sum up your p h d. in a couple of <laughs> sentences, which is a sad <laughs> thing to do uh what would you say like your major findings were from that experience? What I found was that
1: group A streptococcus can survive and also replicate in the cytosol of human macrophages. And that's important because before I did that, this wasn't really known actually whether group A strep actually has an intracellular lifestyle. It was classically seen as an extracellular pathogen. And so there was a couple of observations in the literature prior to me starting the PhD that suggested that group A strep could be found in macrophages retrieved from patients with necrotizing fasciitis, for example. But no one had really studied the interaction of that bacteria with with human macrophages. And so that was kind of the novel finding. That was what was really interesting. And I showed a little bit more mechanistic insights. For example, group A strep secretes a streptolysin O toxin. Once inside the cell, this toxin allows bacteria to escape its intracellular vacuole. And so it escapes from its vacuole into the cytoplasm with this toxin. And then once in the cytoplasm, that's obviously a really nutrient-rich environment, and the bacteria is able to replicate,
0: and that leads to destruction of the of the host cell. So after clearly having a very successful PhD, were you pretty confident that academia was the lifestyle and career choice for you, and that you'd go on to do a postdoc, or did you kind of have to think about it a little bit? Had to think about it a little bit the phd was very very challenging
1: for me it was successful in the end but you know during that process i wasn't sure whether it was going to be successful as i mentioned earlier i i was ambitious and i wanted to transition to a a top lab and as i said I, i got that experience but it was a very steep learning curve from the time that i arrived until the time i left i had matured a lot and I developed a lot but it was a tough experience at the start I needed to learn a lot and I made maybe some mistakes and I was a bit slow in the beginning so it was a very tough experience and my boss was an absolutely incredible scientist incredibly smart very very hard working and he was very very tough on me very very tough it helped me as a scientist but also kind of exhausted me as well and at least in the uk also it's a bit different than in the us phds are a lot shorter so with the marie curie funding i had three years of funding and that was it and in imperial college you have four years to graduate and that's it you don't get an extension so i had to do this in four years and again as i said i I didn't even get the (laughs) group A streptococcus strain until four months after I started my PhD. So the clock was always against me. At the end, I wasn't sure if I wanted to do a postdoc, but I ultimately decided I wanted to to test myself. I wasn't sure if this was the career for me. I I also had a lot of self-doubt whether or not I was actually a good scientist. And I ultimately decided I did want to do a, a postdoc because I wanted to prove to myself that I could do this, that I was a good scientist, that I could do really, really good research. In the end, I thought to myself, if it doesn't go well, and I don't, I don't do well in a postdoc, and it's not for me, I'm happy that I have a PhD, it was
0: successful, and I was happy with that. A lot of what you said resonates with me for sure. The imposter syndrome. Yeah, for sure. I think probably resonates with most people in science. Um, We're all just constantly unsure if we're good enough, right? Um, So it's probably really good for people to hear that someone who is clearly successful now has had those thoughts kind of throughout. And in, in my experience, the best scientists that I know
1: are the ones that doubt themselves the most. I think it's probably that That mental thing that you have, whether you're not sure if you're good enough, actually pushes you to be
0: better. How do you maintain that edge without the anxiety? Because that's the best place to be, right? Where you're like always trying to be better, but not having the negative emotions tied with the imposter syndrome. Yeah. How do you get there? I think the, the
1: longer that you're in research you just see so many different people. There are so many different personalities, people with different abilities. And also, different people have different traits that work well. I always think that there's, you know, almost like 20 different personality traits that you need to be in this this career. And of course, you can't have all of them. But you got to focus on the ones that you do have. Again, if maybe you're incapable of the big picture view or something but you're really good at generating consistent data and you have very good ideas and you're got great critical thinking ability uh, to to improve your own data and you know maybe you've got a lot of perseverance and persistence you know that's another important trait to have for example in a phd just you got to keep going and and pushing yourself in academia and labs, the people that I work with are always very supportive. Everybody knows how difficult it is uh, to do this work, and so you gotta open up to other people as well. Like, if if you're not sure, you're not sure of your data, you're not sure you're good enough. You know, talk to people. Everybody's kind of been there, and uh, you'll find support with with the people in your lab and colleagues and
0: friends. Yeah, a good environment is key to success. I think.
1: Yeah. I feel like the the toughest labs usually the people have a stronger bond. When there's a lot of demands and you're working in a fast pace, very tough environment, usually I find that everybody's very supportive and work as a as a team, almost as a family. And that was really important for me in my PhD was the learning from the postdocs around me. I had really good mentors. For example, Sophie Helene was a postdoc in David Holden's lab. She's a PI now in Harvard she's doing really really well she she was fantastic Teresa Thurston was a postdoc as well in David's lab she helped me a lot in my PhD she's also principal investigator as well in Imperial so these people were really really good and without them I I don't think I would have been able to do it and so I, I relied a lot on the support of the senior people in the lab so I think that's that's an important decision, I guess, if you're choosing a lab to go to is what are the type of people that are there. Are they going to help you? Are they supportive? It's a, it's an important almost as important as choosing the your supervisor is the
0: lab environment, I would say. Right. Especially in a very big lab or fast paced moving lab where the PI may not even really be around much to Yeah. To mentor you. You're sure. really being mentored by those people you see every day. Yeah. And so best choose wisely. I think so. Yeah, I think so. Fast forward after the PhD, you landed here in the the United States. That's right. In San Diego. How did you end up here? I ended up here because I was really
1: interested in the research that Richard Gallo was doing. I was working on group A streptococcus, which of course is a very important skin pathogen. So I was very familiar with the literature from Rich Gallo's lab, also Victor Nizayi, Uh, who had done a lot of really good work on group A strep. And so these were the two big labs that I was familiar with. And I guess kind of in a maybe funny way, you know, working in a very rainy gray city like London, where my office window looked to another gray wall, I would be on the the lab pages of the victor and lab and richard gallo and you'd see the the lab photos of everybody on the beach you know i was like well san diego looks like a very nice place to do research when i finished my phd and i thought where i wanted to do my postdoc i immediately thought of of these type of labs i wanted to work on the skin skin microbiology and so i contacted rich to see if if there was an opening for me and unfortunately, at the time, the, there was no space. Rich was very, very nice. He, We emailed back and forth a lot. I came to San Diego anyway because my girlfriend at the time also found a position in San Diego. And so I moved to San Diego working in a, in a viral lab for the first nine months. And so I was happy to kind of change careers, but I kept in touch with Rich Gallo a lot and an opportunity came up when I arrived in San Diego my supervisor at the time who's working on HIV he accepted a position to go to UC Riverside he got a position there and I decided that it's not really going to work for me I wanted to stay in San Diego good choice I think it was a very good choice (laughs) yeah and I got in contact with Rich again and said hey I'm here in San Diego remember me And we had a good chat in his office. Uh, He invited me to attend the journal club seminars and the lab meetings. So I I joined for a few months, tried to impress as I could, tried to ask smart questions. And I I guess I impressed him because he was happy to to take me on and and offered me a position. So
0: that's that's how I ended up here in the Gallo Lab. So what was it about skin that intrigued you? Not even so much skin. I guess it's
1: strep in general I was really interested in, the the host pathogen interactions between group A strep and Staphylococcus aureus. I was more interested in gram-positive organisms, I think probably because I was the only one working on a gram-positive organism in the Holden lab. Everybody was working on Salmonella, so I tried to distance myself probably from gram-negatives and really tried to establish myself as a as an expert in gram positives that's that's what I wanted to do that's where I I thought I should focus on in my PhD and so I like the the skin microbiome stuff actually this is this is what really interested me in coming to Rich Gallo's lab he was pioneering a lot of really cool research into the skin microbiome and that's kind of what I wanted to work on I like the idea of of working on this new emerging field of, of microbiome
0: sciences what did Rich and you decide that you would work on when you joined the lab? I would follow a little bit in the footsteps of a grad student,
1: Jim Sanford, when he was here. I would follow up a little bit on the research that that he had done for his uh, graduate work, which was working on Cutibacterium bacterium acnes or C-acnes. He was looking a, a lot at these uh, short chain fatty acids these fermentation metabolites that C. acnes produces that cause a lot of uh, pro-inflammatory activity and also have epigenetic uh, modification ability as well and so he was working on a very limited number of strains just a couple of reference strains and Rich was really interested in extending that out and seeing if if this is a strain type dependent response. So we wanted to look a lot more into clinical isolates of C acnes. So my initial aim was really to to get swabs of uh, acne patients, also people here in the lab. I swabbed their face and isolated thousands of different C acnes colonies. And essentially made a large library of C acne's isolates to look at their ability to cause inflammation in
0: keratinocytes. So that was my that was my initial goal really at the start. And that initial screen was the basis for this publication, correct? So this was the basis for a publication from last
1: year where we actually used this library of C acne strain to See if there's a commensal coagulase negative staphylococci that could inhibit the growth of C. acnes. And so, this was a publication in JID last year where we found a Staphylococcus capitis strain that had antimicrobial activity against C. acnes, but its activity was less effective against other commensal species on the skin. So, it had a, somewhat of a selective activity. And so this was a very interesting finding, and we thought this could have good therapeutic activities for
0: acne, which, of course, is associated with C-acnes. And so the paper you published just recently in eLife was titled, Antimicrobials from a Feline Commensal Bacterium Inhibit Skin Infection by Drug-Resistant Staphylococcus Pseudo-Intermedius. Yeah. So let's talk about this publication's hot off the press, so... (laughs) What was the the rationale behind this investigation? So this publication, this research was connected
1: a little bit to the, the Staph Capitas project that I mentioned, the one that we published last year. We know a lot in this lab about the antimicrobials and the antimicrobial strains that reside on human skin. So we've done a lot of work on the human skin microbiome. And we've also found a lot of new antimicrobials that are produced on the skin from this work. What was less known was the antimicrobials that are present in the animal microbiome. We had a collaboration with Kate Worthing, who is at the University of Sydney. She's a veterinarian and she's done a lot of work on the animal microbiome from cats and dogs. And so she was interested to see if whether any of these strains could have antimicrobial activity against human pathogens, but also dog pathogens as well. So she visited the Gallo lab a few years back and she brought with her her library of of animal isolates. And we worked together to test the activity. We did a lot of antimicrobial assays on her animal strains. And we found a couple of very interesting isolates on the skin of cats. These isolates were identified as Staphylococcus felis. And they turned out to be very, very potent at inhibiting the growth of drug-resistant Staph aureus and also drug-resistant Staph pseudorintermedius.
0: What were the major methods you used in this report? The main method that we used here
1: is HPLC. We were able to generate fractions of the secreted supernatant of the staphylococcus felis and from these fractions we're able to identify single peaks individual proteins that elude off and we tested all of these fractions for antimicrobial activity and so we're lucky that we found uh, a very interesting fraction that had a lot of activity and we took advantage of a long-term collaboration that we have here in UCSD, the David Gonzalez lab. They are experts in mass spectrometry. And so we sent some of our fractions to the Gonzalez lab for them to analyze it. And they came back with some positive hits. We had a couple of antimicrobial peptides that came out as positive hits. Some of these were phenol soluble modulin beta class peptides, which we've previously demonstrated to have antimicrobial activity. And we also found a very interesting thiopeptide called micrococcin P1 that this Staphylococcus felis
0: produces as well. Sort of an analogy to explain this technology is that you're kind of starting with a very large haystack with a single needle in it, right? Yeah. Too much to, to look through. It's so big. So you basically separate out that haystack into smaller haystacks, right? And then see which ones are doing the, the effect that you found with the big one, right? And then once you find that small subset that's able to do the thing, then you kind of can dig through that haystack and find the needle. Exactly, yeah. Did you have some experience using those technologies before? Do you kind of have to learn on the fly?
1: Yeah, I, I learned on the fly here. So my initial project here when I started was definitely more research focus, um just looking at the basic biology of sea of acnes and then it kind of migrated a little bit more towards I, I guess essentially drug discovery and development this project kind of reflects that a little bit more I think my my interests um, kind of diverged a little bit while I was while I was in the lab so I really like this approach the needle in the haystack approach I like that there's a very logical sequence. Of events, a logical sequence of research steps that you can do in order to be able to identify these type of antimicrobials,
0: so you found the antimicrobial mm-hmm. and now, after this is all published, like I guess the implication is that since this commensal microbe can inhibit the skin infection from the pathogenic strain, that it could be a potential treatment.
1: Yes, this is what we're exploring now at the moment, and so I guess the issue is, obviously, drug resistance in these pathogens is a very, very big problem. And it's getting worse because there's not a lot of new antibiotics and antimicrobials that are coming out to market. And that's because, I think, essentially, pharma has ignored the problem. It's very, very costly. It takes a very long time to develop a new antimicrobial. And the problem is resistance develops very, very fast. And so there's a a new need to identify novel antimicrobials to fill that gap. The issue is, is a lot of these antimicrobials, these bacteriocins, these antibiotics, which we we find a lot in the skin commensal strains, they don't have a lot of useful therapeutic applications in terms of their poor solubility are limited in terms of how you can commercially synthesize them and so one of the approaches that we thought to make was actually to apply the live bacteria as a therapeutic the bacteria produce these molecules first this is what we did in this paper we infected the skin of mice with staph intermedius and then we applied the live staph felis organism onto the skin and we found that the felis was able to outcompete the pathogenic pseudo strain and we saw less inflammation on the skin and so what we are trying to do now is formulate the staph felis strain and apply it to the skin of dogs with atopic dermatitis and pyoderma these dogs that are colonized with staph pseudointermedius. And so this is our next immediate aim to collaborators that we have at Texas A&M to do this small trial
0: in dogs. And the thought is that the Staph pseudo-intermedius is a driving factor of the atopic dermatitis. So you put the S. felis on there, it gets rid of the, the driving factor of the atopic dermatitis, and then you hopefully have clear skin. Yes, this is the hope, and that maybe we can help restore a more
1: stable and healthy microbiome on the skin of dogs, by having the felis targeting the pseudo-intermedius, which is what we know is,
0: seems to be driving a lot of the, the inflammation and the disease. Future directions for probably yourself and for this project are going to be working on this clinical trial, right? Yeah, I think so. Are you excited, nervous? I'm excited about it.
1: I hope it works. We've demonstrated the applicability of, of using a bacteriotherapy approach at least in humans. The work of Teru Nakatsuji here, our project scientist, he's really pioneered a lot of this in human AD, where we've taken a staph hominis, human commensal strain, and applied to the skin of human patients with atopic dermatitis, and shown that you can reduce the number of staph aureus on their skin and improve their disease score. They just published this year the very positive results of a phase two clinical trial there and so i think this is a, a very powerful approach it's very new and i think it could work for for a lot of skin diseases that are at least driven in part by microbes such as staph aureus, pseudorintermedius and also potentially for acne vulgaris as well which we think is also driven in part by colonization of
0: sea acnes. So with Teru's work that you mentioned, you have sort of a nice blueprint you can follow. Mm -hmm. Do you anticipate there being any challenges with your particular microbe that Teru didn't have with his in the clinical trial you're working on? I hope not. I guess the main thing is, is how well this microbe will be able
1: to colonize the skin. But we can probably circumvent that by doing repeated applications. So for example, the staphylus is found on cat skin, but we don't know how well it colonizes dog skin. So it could be a very transient colonization. Maybe we don't need the bacteria to really kind of stably colonize for for too long. Um, So that would be one issue when you use a, a different organism, is how well it survives on the skin. The main thing that we always have to make sure of by doing a bacteriotherapy approach is to make sure that these organisms that we're putting on the skin could not potentially be pathogenic we do a lot of tests we apply the organism on mouse skin alone to make sure that there's no inflammatory effect we also do experiments on human cells with the secreted supernatant of these cells to make sure that they don't have any significant toxic effect and we also make sure that these organisms are sensitive to a lot of different antibiotics as well so that we can always remove that pathogen in case there's some inflammation or there's some toxicity
0: issues. The benefit of all this is that you're not creating a drug, you're just using something that's already there and trying to replace the bad with the good. And so, theoretically, it should be pretty safe.
1: Yeah, I mean, of course, there's been a a huge amount of work to demonstrate that with Teru's trials in humans. And the hominous strain that they apply is safe and it's effective.
0: That's very exciting. Definitely, I think some of the future of, of medicine is microbe-based therapies.
1: Yeah, I think so too. There's a little bit of reticence for people thinking about applying a live bacteria onto the skin, but these are, these are commensal strains which are already on our skin in right. the case of hominus. It's just a more rare isolate that has this really unique antimicrobial activity. They should be able to tolerate colonization on the skin And like I said before, a lot of the problems with coming up with new antimicrobials and antibiotics is a lot of these are very complicated to make. Some of these antibiotics, they're ribosomally synthesized, they have post-translational modifications. So there's a complicated genetic system in the bacteria to produce these antimicrobials. That makes them a lot more difficult to have them commercially, you know, commercial purified extracts of these. So Applying the bacteria, which naturally produce them, is obviously
0: uh, will obviously circumvent that big problem. What's next for you career-wise? Do you see yourself using this experience with clinical trials to like, kind of jumpstart your future as a drug developer?
1: I've been thinking a lot about that lately. Since I've recently finished my postdoc and I'm now a project scientist, I have been thinking a little bit more about what's next in my career. As I mentioned, I really, I really like these projects that, that I did here. Identifying the, the Staph capitis, which uh, targets the acnes, and we're using that as a as a bacteriotherapy for acne. And now, and now the Felis for the, for the Suter Intermedius. So I really like this kind of drug discovery approach. And I think I will probably transition to industry sometime in the future that's probably where my career lies hopefully being able to lead a group in maybe yeah early drug discovery mechanisms I think I'll stick with looking at inflammatory and autoimmune diseases I think these are very important I'd like to stay involved in in skin research as well and so yeah who knows I think a lot of what I've learned here in the gala lab I'll be able to translate that into industry and hopefully learn a lot of new cool techniques as well and i always like just being open to new ideas and learning new things so that's that's the main thing for me as long as i as long as i keep challenging myself
0: learning new things i'll be happy Do you think it's the fast-paced nature, large amount of funding that kind of intrigues you, or is it maybe the, the lifestyle that you would have as a manager of a team that doesn't involve so much grant writing, but more project development that intrigues you? In academia, you're
1: a little bit more limited. If you want to keep going in academia, you'll have to write your own grants and become a principal investigator. I'm just not sure if that's if that's for me it's it's so competitive very few people make it and it's it's so tough to run a lab and keep your lab funded in academia just not sure if that's the route i want to go down i would like to be focused more my time focused on research on discovery and yeah as you mentioned maybe not be too focused about where the money comes from or not being able to utilize this particular technique or this technology because there's no funding and so i think probably based on a lot of conversations that i've had with a lot of friends of mine who are in industry i think am maybe i'm probably more suited to industry but i don't know until i go so uh, we'll
0: see if i like it and do you think you're more of a startup kind of guy or larger established company maybe larger established
1: company i feel i guess with the conversations that i've had i think the startup environment is almost like a postdoc in a way i think mm-hmm. and also maybe it's a little bit more strict in terms of what the goals are because as a startup you have very very specific goals you've got to, you know you've got to prove that this particular technology works whatever it is that the company is supposed to do you've got maybe a limited amount of funds and limited amount of time to really show that your idea, your drug, your technology whatever it is has to work. And so maybe it's more strict. So I guess I would probably think uh, to target some of the larger companies. But who knows? It depends on the position. It depends on it depends
0: on the project. Yeah, you kind of just got to try it out, you know. And yeah. if it doesn't work. Exactly. Try something else. That's what we do, right? In <laughs> science. <laughs> yeah. If you could go back in time and maybe tell yourself something back when you were maybe a phd student what would be like maybe like the one or two things that you wish you knew that you know now i think i probably would have liked to have more belief in myself
1: i think maybe that's the that's the major thing and we kind of touched on that a little bit you know the the imposter syndrome yeah and just have belief in my data trust in my data i think maybe that's what slowed me down a lot in my phd Just wasn't sure if I really believed the data, and maybe I need to, you know, repeat experiments that really didn't need to be repeated, and just being very unsure about kind of taking the project to the next level. So, I think just a little bit more self belief because, you know, the best thing to do is just do the experiment. Sometimes I overthink a little bit as well. I'm planning the experiment in my head way too long where I in the same time, I could have just done it and found out what the answer is. And so I think that probably would be the two things that I would maybe like to have changed. Just a little bit more belief in myself and then just maybe the courage just to go, just do the experiment
0: and see what happens. If it doesn't work, no big deal because you just try something else. So with that, I just want to ask you if there's any final things you want to say before you wrap up. I want to be respectful of your time. It's Friday <laughs> afternoon. <laughs>
1: Uh, i'm not sure if i if i have anything else
0: if anyone wants to like uh, reach out to you maybe we could provide them your email or something like that yeah, absolutely if they have any questions about your science or your path we could drop your uh your email in the show notes if that's okay with you or something yeah
1: absolutely yeah everybody every lab is different every person is different and whether you're doing a master's or a phd or a postdoc they're all quite different experiences I always offer my support. I'll always try and give helpful advice to people who need it and try to be a mentor. And so I was probably a little bit shy back in the day as well and kind of maybe uh I could have asked for help a little bit more and you know asked people to look at my data, ask for advice. So I think it's it's uh it's very tough to be in this career and so it's it's important to get as much help and support and advice as as possible so so of course yeah uh, happy to provide my
0: email if if anyone wants to
1: contact me and yeah
0: awesome so ask for advice and and pay it forward (laughs) well thank you for taking the time to chat man this has been fun oh yeah this is very
1: good i really uh, really appreciate it
0: yeah hopefully it uh it recorded (laughs) 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 all right we're done